Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Good morning, Brigham Young University. On the heels of such an uplifting and inspiring general conference, I'm honored to have the opportunity to bear my testimony of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and the powerful potential it has to transform our everyday interactions as we take his sacred name upon us. To set the stage, I'd like to begin with two stories. As a young graduate, I went to work for an accounting firm. I was eager to demonstrate my worth, and I attempted to fulfill each task to which I was assigned with precision and efficiency. Beyond that, I often volunteered for extra assignments, and over time, I built a reputation as being an employee that would step up to whatever was asked of her. Then came the request that gave me pause. An important reporting deadline was approaching, and our Fortune 500 client needed a physical inventory audit. Don't panic. I'm not going to bore you with the details of what that audit entailed. But the key points are these. The audit had to be done in person. It had to be done on a Sunday. And I was the person they wanted to do it. You see the dilemma. I was fully committed to supporting my team. But I had also made a commitment to myself and to my God that I would avoid working on the Sabbath, except as strictly necessary. So I approached my manager. I told her that I was a Mormon. Now, pause for just a second. This story happened before President Nelson's inspired corrections. So while I should have said, I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I didn't. I'm going to stick to the words I actually used, Okay. So I said, I'm a Mormon, and an important facet of my religious observance is keeping the Sabbath day holy. I emphasized that while I didn't want to work on Sunday, I really wasn't trying to shirk. I would be glad to take two Saturday assignments if I could be relieved of this one. Seemed reasonable to me. She smiled kindly and then firmly denied my request. She said, I understand. I've worked with Mormons before, and I know that's your preference. But everyone at the end of the day just steps up and takes one for the team. Disappointed, I offered a silent prayer. Father, give me the words to help her understand. As I concluded that prayer, my mind immediately was drawn to a colleague that I had worked with during a summer internship. This colleague would arrive every Friday morning at 5 a.m., in order to leave by 3 p.m., because as an Orthodox Jew, he was prohibited from driving on Shabbat, which began Friday at sundown. Although the sun didn't set until closer to 7 p.m., this colleague valued his commitment so deeply that no amount of Los Angeles traffic could frustrate his important religious observance. The Spirit whispered to me, that colleague's faith is the key to helping your manager understand. So I took a deep breath and tried again. Oh, I'm so sorry. I think I misexplained. I'm actually an Orthodox Mormon. (laughs) Yeah. 
it was as if a light came on for her and her entire demeanor was wholly changed. Now that she understood the depth of my convictions, she was happy to accommodate my request. <laughs> what an incredible thing that that small word, orthodox, conveyed such powerful meaning because of individuals that have lived their life with faith and exactness and integrity. And that because of the example of a believing Jewish colleague, the way had been paved for me to exercise my own devotion. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we are empowered each week with the sacred opportunity to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, a designation which is far weightier than even that word, orthodox. In the words of Elder M. Russell Ballard, the name the Savior has given to his church tells us exactly who we are and what we believe. The question for you today then becomes, how do we carry that name? Prior to coming to BYU, I spent several years on the faculty at Harvard Business School, where I had the opportunity to teach and interact with many amazing professionals. I deeply loved the Savior, and I loved my students. And although I wasn't free to speak as candidly as we're blessed to do here at BYU, I took the opportunity to regularly speak of and try to model through my example matters of eternal importance. I was trying my best to do as Paul admonishes us, to be an example of the believers. And if I'm being honest, I thought I was doing pretty great. But the Lord knew I could do better. One night after a conference, I went out with several colleagues. As the evening progressed, someone noticed I wasn't drinking, prompting the usual inquiry, Abigail, are you a Mormon? As I responded in the affirmative, a nearby colleague dropped his drink, yes, dropped his drink and exclaimed, really? I would have never guessed. <laughs> he then continued, it gets worse, in dubious amazement. You're not like a fully practicing Mormon, right? At this point, I was feeling a little bit humiliated and confused. What about me screamed, not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ? I was modestly dressed, I kept the word of wisdom, I used clean language and faithfully attended my worship services, all common litmus tests for an outsider questioning our faith. But beyond that, I was trying to expect my discipleship in the way I lived, in the way I loved, and in the way that I served. Where had I gone wrong? Befuddled, I affirmed my devoutness to my faith, and I invited that colleague to ask me any question he liked, freebie. Having lived outside of Utah, this was not my first rodeo, and I fully anticipated the usual litany of personal questions. Have you ever smoked? Were you chased before marriage? And the one that makes me laugh every time, do you wear special underwear? <laughs> really? Who asks that? But none of these were on the quiz that night. Instead, my colleague looked at me earnestly and asked, Do you do genealogy? <laughs> yeah, so about that. I feebly admitted, uh, not really that much. My parents did it all. 
My colleague then informed me that he had once known a devout member who had explained the concept of this principle in the context of eternal families and temples. I attempted to save the moment by sharing my own convictions on these revealed truths, but my colleague soon lost interest, and I knew I had missed an important opportunity. My actions, or inactions in this case, spoke louder than my words, and it was impossible for me to accurately convey the depth of my convictions when they were so starkly juxtaposed against my lackadaisical negligence to an inspired, prophetic invitation. What this colleague had once supposed about members of the Church of Jesus Christ was weakened as opposed to strengthened by my example. Again, I would ask, how do we carry his name? In both of these stories, my actions directly influenced the way that my colleagues came to know me and, by association, what they inferred about members of the Church. In a similar vein, their previous interactions with faithful members, both from our faith and from other religious denominations, had shaped their expectations about what to expect from a believer. Over the last seven years, as I have been privileged to work here at BYU, I have been distinctly impressed that your challenges and opportunities are going to be even greater than mine in showcasing what it means to be a believer. For most of my professional career, having lived outside of Utah and having graduated from a non-BYU school, sorry, I have at times been what you might call a member incognito. By contrast, as you embark upon your education at a church school and someday start your career with a prestigious BYU degree stamped on your diploma, you are immediately and visibly marked as a member. You will not fly under the radar. Like my experience then, what people infer from your membership, what they come to believe about BYU, and more importantly, perhaps all they know about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ will in many instances be a direct consequence of their interactions with you. In a very literal sense, the Savior is describing each one of you when he admonished that we must be the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill which cannot be hid. In recounting his visit from the angel Moroni, Joseph Smith recorded the following. He called me by name and said that he was a messenger from God sent to me that God had a work for me to do, and that my name should be had for good and evil among all kindreds and tongues. Like Joseph Smith, you have been given a charge. You have been trusted by God the Eternal Father to take upon yourself the most sacred of all names, that of his Son, Jesus Christ. He has a work for you to do, and he invites you to always remember him and keep his commandments. When you renew those covenants each week, you are committing to conduct yourself in words, in actions, in even your most secret thoughts, in ways that will uplift his church. In a very real way, you must choose whether your name and through your actions 
the Lord's name will be interpreted for good or for evil. What a weighty but exciting responsibility. So how will you carry his name? What do we want to be known for? There are many good things for which we could be known, but today we're going to focus our attention on two messages which I view as critical for us to convey to the world. Message number one, the gospel of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is a gospel of love. In response to the pharisaical inquiry, Master, which is the great commandment of the law? The Savior taught, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Articulated as two separate commandments, President Monson has taught that these two are actually inseparably and deeply intertwined. He taught, we cannot truly love God if we do not love our fellow travelers. Likewise, we cannot fully love our fellow men if we do not love God, the Father of us all. In his final hours with his disciples, the Savior taught, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. As members of the BYU community, and more importantly, as disciples of Jesus Christ, how must our daily interactions communicate this love for the Lord and for his children? Let me pose some primer questions for your internal reflection. Do I watch for individuals who may be struggling and proactively seek to bear their burdens? Am I slow to criticize and quick to forgive? Do I avoid contention, striving instead to love and understand those whom I disagree with? Do I seek to elevate and celebrate the divine in all those around me? If your answer to any of these questions is yes, then the question that follows is how can I best continue to do that? And if your answer is, I'm not quite there yet, then the second question is, how can I do better? In the six months that have followed last April's conference, my mind has repeatedly been drawn back to President Nelson's talk, Peacemakers Needed, which contains an urgent call to action. If you have not listened to this talk, do it today. And if you have listened to this talk, do it again. I testify that there is prophetic wisdom in that talk for each one of you individually that will help you know how you can do better. In his talk, President Nelson acknowledges with sadness the toxic contention, polarization, and evil speaking that have become all too characteristic of our civil dialogue, personal relationships, and online persona. He has pointed in his affirmation of the Savior's declaration that those who have the spirit of contention are not of him. And then with prophetic clarity, he provided this invitation, which has so deeply penetrated my soul. As I play the following clip, 
you will notice that the prophet of the Lord asks you to please listen carefully. This message is for each of you. Please listen carefully. My dear brothers and sisters, how we treat each other really matters. How we speak to and about others at home, at church, at work, at online really matters. Today I'm asking us to interact with others in a higher, holier way. Please listen carefully. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy that we can say about another person, whether to his face or behind her back, that should be our standard of communication. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, that should be the standard of our communication. Love is not about simply abstaining from the negative, choosing to hold your tongue when your thoughts are unkind, or to walk away rather than to engage in conflict. Love is instead, like all of the Savior's commands, a much higher and much holier law. We are instructed by the Savior to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. This difficult command can only be achieved as we learn to perceive to see one another through his vantage, to focus on and elevate the goodness in others rather than to eschew the bad, to believe with a fullness of heart that each person we encounter is a divine child of our Heavenly Father, beloved beyond compare by him, and by virtue of his creation, endowed with the potential to become as he is. Only when we see one another as he does, can we start to love one another as he has loved you. To carry his name, we must carry his love. Message number two, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of revelation. One of the most exciting and marvelous truths of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is that God has not ceased to communicate with man that as he ever did, he ever does reveal principles of divine instruction essential to our day through his living prophets. Indeed, this is the defining foundation for the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider the following. Through revelation, we are taught of our unique relationship to the God of all heaven as the literal father of our spirits. Knowing who we are, and perceiving others in this light, we are better equipped to trust in his love, perceive our own potential, and view others as he sees them. Through revelation, we are taught that we are created in his image, that our bodies are like sacred temples, endowed with God-like power to create life and destined to reunite with our spirit in resurrection. 
This knowledge provides the foundation for outward manifestations of our reverence for physical bodies, including principles of modesty, the wearing of temple garments, the word of wisdom, and chastity. Through revelation, we obtain a deeper knowledge of the Savior as the only begotten of the Father, who suffered not only for our sins, but also for all of the heartache, illness, and vexation we encounter. We learn that there is no transgression beyond the reach of his infinite atonement, and there is no despair beyond the healing of his infinite embrace. Through personal revelation, you can come to know the truthfulness of these revealed doctrines and feel the depth of his love for you. And knowing these truths, really knowing, will bring us back to that first and great commandment, creating in disciples an urgent desire to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And loving him must then motivate us to do as he has asked, feed his sheep and keep his commandments. This is a beautiful circle of truth. The great commandment is to love God. And to love God, you keep his commandments as revealed by the voice of his servants, the prophets. As you do, you will come to know him and love him more deeply. One eternal round. It is a simple but profound framework. How then does this framework manifest in the daily actions of a disciple of Jesus Christ? First, disciples of Jesus Christ, motivated by their deep and abiding love for him, seek to keep his commandments with exactness and integrity. We must be known as orthodox believers, if you will. I have often heard the phrase, the devil is in the details. I think more accurately, however, one might conclude that the devotion is in the details, while the devil is in the deviations. God does not give commandments that he does not want us to keep, full stop. He does not provide counsel through his prophets that he does not want us to implement. Rather, he instructs, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear and come follow me. Every time we choose to deviate from his inspired commands, justifying that we are the exception or that our deviations are somehow inconsequential, we are stepping away rather than towards our Savior. No man can serve two masters, and our actions must bear witness to whose side we are on. Second, disciples of Jesus Christ, motivated by our deep and abiding love for him, trust in his timeline. We know that although much has been revealed, many great and important things are yet to be revealed, as we are taught line upon line. This principle of revelation is crucial to our time. As students pursuing higher education, you are being trained to ask deep questions, to seek diligently for answers. Make no mistake, 
Developing your intellectual capabilities is a God-given characteristic, and the Lord wants you to think deeply about issues of great importance. However, in pursuing our questions, God also expects that with humility, we are willing to be still and know that he is God. To do as Nephi did, to rely on the fact that while we may not know the truth of all things, the thing most worth knowing is that God loveth his children. Since coming to BYU, I have had the privilege to sit with many exemplary disciples of Jesus Christ in my office who have trusted me enough to come with questions, concerns, or even doubts about principles of eternal significance. One of the most common themes to these visits is that individuals often enter my door with some sort of apology. I know I should have more faith, but I am still struggling, but I have tried. I feel like an imposter. Please listen to me closely. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It is not the absence of concerns or questions. Indeed, faith cannot exist without doubt, or else we would have perfect knowledge. Faith is a choice, and more foundationally, faith is a desire to believe in spite of what we do not know or cannot yet understand. These individuals who came to my office are true examples of the believers. They are choosing to stay at the table and trust that the metaphorical Brussels sprouts truly are better than a steady diet of BYU mint brownies. <laughs> Don't walk away. Don't walk away. Choose to hope rather than despair when the answers or the solutions that you are earnestly seeking aren't forthcoming. You are seen. Faith is the manifestation of your deep and abiding love for God, paired with a humility sufficient to believe that his knowledge of and love for us surpasses all understanding, even that of brilliant BYU students and professors. Your presence here today listening to this devotional shows that you are seeking revelation. Trust in the power of revelation to right all wrongs and make all things clear in his time. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we must convey the conviction of a gospel centered in revelation and love, not by shying away from the hard questions, but by approaching those questions with a lens of faith. How can our actions reflect this conviction to the world around us? Again, let me offer a few questions for personal reflection. Do I actively advocate for, support, and live with exactness the counsel of prophets, bearing witness through my words and actions? Do I exercise humility and patience in seeking to understand doctrine, policy, or historical accounts that do not presently resonate with my worldview, politics, or understanding? Do I seek diligently for personal revelation in my daily life and interactions? 
do I call upon the Savior as part of my daily repentance. To carry his name, we must trust and act upon his revealed commandments, exercising humility and patience in his timeline. Disciples of Jesus Christ are not perfect, nor do they expect others to be. Rather, they trust that only by and through him is perfection possible. Be ye, therefore, an example of the believers. Within the next few years, you will graduate from this elite university. That pedigree will open doors for you because people will understand the rigor, hard work, and academic excellence entailed by a BYU degree. But more importantly, your choice to come to BYU proclaims to the world a personal commitment to continue to learn of, to serve, and to know your Savior. That choice will make you distinctive among your peers and provide opportunities to shape what people around you know of his gospel and his love. You are his ambassadors, and through your action, his light must be reflected. How will you carry his name? I testify from a lifetime of learning that being an example of the believers does not happen by accident. It requires deep and sometimes painful introspection to determine how one can better emulate the Savior and more boldly defend his work. It necessitates love and commitment to serve God and our fellow men with full purpose of heart, might, mind, and strength. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we must take upon us not only his name, but also his revealed perspective and his love, so that those who know you might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. He is truly the way and the truth and the life, and this is his restored gospel. Of this I testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.